as we come now before the Word of God. If you would like to read with me, uh, no surprise here, we will still be in the book of Exodus. We'll be in Exodus chapter 8 this morning. And just a few uh, verses here, Exodus chapter 8. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, you are God in the heavens. And you rule over the kingdoms of the earth, over all the nations. In your hand is power and might, and none is able to withstand you. Lord, would you work in our hearts now with that power and might? Change us. Shape us to love what you love and to hate what you hate. Conform us to your word and guide us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be this morning in Exodus chapter 8. I'll begin here in verse 16. It's just a small few verses. But Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. And all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of God. This is now the third of the ten plagues of Egypt as we continue now to read uh, through this book together. These plagues come in waves or cycles of three. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. So this third plague is now the end of the very first cycle. And in this first cycle, we are focusing here on our time together on Pharaoh's hard heart. That the Lord has said through Moses and Aaron, he has said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh refuses. He rebels against the Lord because his heart is hard. And so as a result, the Lord begins to pour out these ten plagues, these ten great judgments. And so far, we've already seen the Nile water turn into blood. We've seen frogs come out in hordes. And now we see the dust turn into gnats. None of these plagues, by the way, are deadly. At least not yet. But they are severely irritating. Now, that's an understatement. I know just this week, we spent a little bit of time outside, and I got like five, just a handful of bug bites, like five or ten bug bites, and just the itching 
from those just uh, drove me bananas. Like hydro, hydrocortisone has been my best friend. It feels like a little game of dot to dot uh, trying to, so I cannot even imagine this level of, of gnats. But this situation, while not deadly, is severe. And if it's allowed to continue, it will devastate the whole land. And yet, Pharaoh persists in his stubborn hard-heartedness. Sometimes we downplay stubbornness either in ourselves or other people. Sometimes we consider stubbornness to be just a part of our personality. I'm just a stubborn person. Or, or maybe sometimes we consider it part of just getting old. Ah, she's just stubborn. Ah, he's just stubborn. Sometimes we even chuckle at that. But it is not funny. A stubbornness like this is a very, very serious sin against the Lord God. And if it is not dealt with, it can come with some very serious consequences. For Pharaoh, the kind of consequences that we're seeing now are gnats. So let's talk about the gnats. Let me mention up front here that I'll call these little things gnats because that's what my translation calls them. That's what most translations call these little bugs. We're not sure exactly what species of insect it was. There's been lots of sort of gratuitous discussion around this. Per, the, the ancient Hebrew is hard to translate because we see this word almost nowhere else in scripture. And so we have nothing really to compare it to. Same is true with the next plague, by the way, of the flies. Uh, these things are rare in scripture, but it's possible that what we call gnats here are actually closer to fleas or perhaps mosquitoes or like some of the older translations, lice. The Hebrew word here has some similarity to the idea of being fastened. So, you know, there's probably some creature that bites or stings or maybe even latches on it doesn't really matter what creature it was. All of this makes my skin crawl. Even just thinking about it this week, I was sitting in my office just like trying not to itch, just the reading of it. Uh, and it makes me want to like get out the hydrocortisone again. Uh, whatever it was, whatever these were, we're not here to analyze the gnats. We'll just call them gnats. We really want to look at the circumstances around them. So this morning, we're going to take a look here and briefly observe at least three things that we don't see in this account that we might expect to be here. And then we'll focus the majority of our attention on one thing we do see in this account. So three things we don't see that we might expect, and then one thing that we do see. Let's first do the three things we don't see here. As we read through this short account, we don't see Warning. We don't see warning here. In the previous plagues, Moses and Aaron confronted Pharaoh with a warning. Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. And if you don't let them go or else, there's going to be a plague that comes if you don't comply. This time, however, there's no indication that there was even contact with Pharaoh at all. 
We don't know how long it's been since the last plague of frogs. We assume it was reasonably soon after, probably about a week or so, at least enough time to, if you look back at the previous verses, at least enough time to pile up the dead frogs in heaps, as delightful as that is. But after Moses's, or Moses's last interaction with Pharaoh, with the frogs, the text just says, and Moses went out from him, and Moses left. And we don't actually see him coming back, not for this plague at least. So soon after, it seems, Pharaoh is sitting on his throne, just a regular day, normal, brushed my teeth in the morning, having breakfast, and then that day he would see up from the dust come a cloud of gnats. And even though there had been no warning, he knows enough by now to know this is from Moses. This is by the hand of the Lord. That's one thing we don't see. We don't see a warning. The second thing that we don't see here is any gods mentioned. We don't see gods mentioned here. We've talked about the gods before a few weeks ago that the Lord says later in chapter 12 about these judgments, these plagues, that he is pouring out these judgments specifically upon the gods of Egypt these real sort of supernatural beings that are not equal to him, they're under him, but he's pouring them out on him. But none of these beings that we might call gods, none of them are ever named, they're ever mentioned or singled out. Now, you might have heard the the claim about this Exodus event, this is very common, that each plague was specifically targeted or tailored toward a particular Egyptian god. So, for example, you know, the Nile blood would have been a specific attack on Hapi, the Egyptian god of the source of the Nile. Or that, the, you know, the plague of the frogs would have been an attack on Heket, the Egyptian god of fertility that's got a head of a frog. And that, you know, the gnats might have been, you know, the, an, an attack on the god Kepri, the god of creation and life who has a beetle's head. Or maybe it's Geb, you know, the god of, of, of the earth and the dust. Maybe that's the case. We don't know. The text never says that particularly. Not here or not in any of the plagues, by the way. What we assume is happening is that the Lord is pouring out all of the plagues broadly as an attack on all of the Egyptian gods at once. Whether they're singled out individually is not even mentioned. None of the gods are even worth mentioning, not by name, not even generally. They're not even a footnote. They're not here. That's the second thing we don't see, mention of the gods. The third and last thing that we do not see is replication. Replication. Here's what I mean by that. Up till now, in the previous plagues, the Egyptian gods have been able on a much smaller scale to replicate the wonders of the Lord, to reproduce the plagues, not able to take them away, but to reproduce them. So their own staffs, they were able to turn into snakes. They were able to bring some water that they could turn to blood. They were able to bring up even more frogs upon the land. But here, for the first time, they can't. They try, it says. Verse 18, they tried by their secret arts to produce gnats in all the land of Egypt, but they could not. 
And the fact that they attempt and fail shows that this is not just smoke and mirrors for them. This is not like a magician's box with a little trick door in the back. This is real supernatural power that somehow reaches its limit, that there is a ceiling to their power. And so from here on, actually, they are not able to replicate the plagues any longer. In fact, we don't even hear from them at all except in one verse. Chapter 9, verse 11 the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Ouch. Now, we don't know exactly why the magicians hit their limit, why they're able to produce some wonders but not others. My best guess is that this time, for the first time in the Nats, we're seeing an act of creation, that from the dust, life is created. It does not say here that the gnats came out of the dust of the earth. It says that the dust became gnats, as eerie as that sounds. Can you imagine it, to watch the dust become gnats? not unfamiliar in the scripture. In the very first pages of the Bible, we see the Lord form Adam from the dust. And so now in a very similar way, he's creating gnats from the dust. This is something that no other power can replicate. And so when the magicians try to copy this and they fail, they are forced to acknowledge something before Pharaoh. This is the very finger of God. So there's the three things that we do not see that we might expect in this text. There's no warning, there's no mention of the gods, and there's no replication. That's what's not here. Now, what is here? We want to focus the rest of our time on one thing that we do see. In fact, this will be no surprise to many of us. Uh, We've come to expect this because we continue to see this, which is Pharaoh's hardened heart. Pharaoh's hardness here is not just a posture or an attitude toward God, though it is also that. By itself, stubbornness is toxic by itself, but it's more than this. That hardness is actually producing, it's breeding tangible effects in Pharaoh. That Pharaoh is is continuing to double down on his disobedience. He's refusing to listen to Moses, and he is choosing here, choosing to reject God. And none of us wants to become like that. So then the question we've been asking here is why is Pharaoh's heart hardened here? In this instance, what can we learn about his hardened heart? Why is Pharaoh's heart hardened here? That's our big question. Let's read to see what we can discover. Let me read again verse 19, the section about the hardening. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. 
Now, as we read that, is there a reason for the hardness given here? Not really. (laughs) There's no particular reason given for the hardness, at least not in the way that we've seen it in the previous plagues. In the previous plagues, it described his hardness, and there was at least some sort of cause connected to that. We've seen that Pharaoh saw that the magicians did, they replicated the plagues by their secret arts, and so his heart was hardened, that he bought their counterfeit. Then in the second plague, we saw uh, that there was a respite from the frogs, that there was some relief, and so that brought about some of the hardness of heart. But here, there is no proximate cause for his hardness given which tells us something important. Listen to me here. If you, if you tuned out, tune back in. Sin, particularly hardness of heart, sin is irrational. Sin is irrational. It is unreasonable. There is often no good reason for it. It is illogical. It doesn't follow any particular predictable path often. And it is nonsense. We just can't make sense of it. I mean, I get why Pharaoh would want to keep the the Israelites as slaves. But now the plagues are systematically unraveling Pharaoh's entire empire. And there's a clear way to stop it from unraveling. The Lord has told him so. Let my people go. And yet Pharaoh persists in his sin and hardness. Sin breaks us away from the Lord God. It separates us from our creator, the sustainer and giver of our very life. So this is very much like the little kid who holds their own breath to try to get their own way. Just doesn't make any sense. And we see this nonsense of sin over and over and over on the pages of Scripture. Even from the very beginning, page 2 of the Bible, the Lord says to Adam, look, Adam. I gave you all this, all of it, it's yours. Rule over it and have dominion. All these trees, all that fruit, all yours. Eat freely, love it, and praise me for all of it. But this one, everything's yours. Don't eat from this one. So, of course, what do we see Adam do? He eats from the one. Sin is nonsense. And Peter... When he, when he is uh, speaking to the crowds in Acts, he says to them, you killed Jesus, the very author of life. The one who's just been among you, healing and restoring and rescuing from sin. You killed the author of life, and it, it, instead you asked for a murderer to be released to you. Why did you do that? Sin is nonsense. And even for you, this is not just in the pages of the Bible, then it gets real. Think about the ones that you love most, the people that you love the most. Those are probably the people that you gripe at the most. 
that you shout at the most, get most impatient with? The ones you take out your frustrations on? The ones that you maybe snub or neglect? These are people that you love, in theory. People that you care about. Why do we do all of that? Sin is nonsense. It doesn't make sense. It's irrational. Which means this. If the problem of sin is irrational... It cannot be fixed by purely rational means. Let me say that again. If the problem of sin is irrational, it cannot be fixed by purely rational means. You can't just talk sense into sin. Have you ever tried to do that with somebody else? Or maybe with yourself? You know, if salvation from sin were just a rational matter, we'd only see the most intelligent, reasoning people become Christians, you know. Ah, I have logically concluded that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. That's not the case. I mean, logic is good, of course, but sin the illogical nature of sin must be addressed by God's Spirit. It must be dealt with by the faith that comes through Jesus. That's the reason why we pray that the Lord will do this work in us. Because we cannot rationalize out of it. Not Moses, not Aaron, not even Pharaoh's own magicians can convince Pharaoh to turn from his hardness of heart. You just can't talk sense into it. Now, there's one more major thing to be said, and this will take a while. If you think I'm done, I'm not. So get comfy. Even though there is no immediate, logical reason why Pharaoh's heart is hard here, if we look closely in this text, there still is an allusion to the source of his hardness, a reference to his hardness. If we look close, let me read verse 19 again. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. As the Lord had said. Actually, if you look back and read carefully, you'll see that very same phrase in all the previous plagues. So the answer to our question is, why is Pharaoh's heart hardened here? It is as the Lord had said. This is happening according to the word of the Lord. Now, let's unpack that a little bit. Stick with me here because this is important. Lean forward, turn your brains on. We can do this, okay? If you made a list... I do these sorts of things because 
I like lists. But if he made a list of every time Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and that's mentioned in Exodus, you would notice a few things. First of all, Pharaoh's hardness of heart is mentioned in every single plague, without exception. It's even mentioned in the, the sort of pre-plague and turning the staff into snakes. It's mentioned there. It's also mentioned in the, the post-plague, if I can call it that, when the Red Sea is parted and then re-put back together on top of the Egyptian army. In each of those situations, it's mentioned all the way throughout this running threat. And every time it's mentioned, Pharaoh's hardened heart is described in one of three ways. Here's the three ways it's described. Either... It's written in passive voice. That's what we actually see in this particular text. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. That's passive voice. We don't know, there's no mention about who's doing the hardening, who's acting upon the hardening. It's just his heart was hardened. Passive voice. It also is sometimes described, second, as with Pharaoh as the actor. So Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Not just it was hardened, Pharaoh hardened his heart. There's a third way that we sometimes hear it described, which is that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So those are the three. Passive voice, his heart was hardened. Pharaoh hardened it himself, or the Lord hardened it. So if we ask the question, who is the main cause of Pharaoh's hardened heart? Well, that's a complex question. Is it the Lord? Is it Pharaoh? I mean, if we look close, Pharaoh is the first one mentioned who actively does the hardening. We see it in the second plague in chapter 8, the one we talked about last week. That's the first time we hear, hear it described where Pharaoh hardened his heart. And the Lord is not explicitly mentioned as the one acting upon the hardness until later, in the sixth plague of the boils. That's where we hear the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart for the first time, although he also foretells that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. He does this before Moses is even back in Egypt at all, back in chapter 4. Uh, let me find it. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. So who's doing us this? Is it Pharaoh? Is it the Lord? It's really both. And I know it's a challenge to wrap our minds around how it can be both, that the Lord hardens and Pharaoh hardens, and somehow that's both at the same time. I found a lot of help from J.I. Packer um, on this particular subject. His book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, is, is remarkably uh, accessible, readable on this subject. And he talks about what he describes as an antinomy, it's a fancy word that he uses there. An antinomy meaning some sort of apparent contradiction. Something that looks like it's contradictory but isn't really. And this is what he says about it. We like to tie up everything into neat intellectual parcels with all appearance of mystery dispelled and no loose ends hanging out. And hence we are tempted to get rid of antinomies from our minds by illegitimate means. 
to suppress or to jettison one truth in the supposed interest of the other and for the sake of a tidier theology. So it is in the present case. The temptation is to undercut and maim the one truth by the way in which we stress the other to assert man's responsibility in a way that excludes God from being sovereign or to affirm God's sovereignty in a way that destroys the responsibility of man. Both mistakes need to be guarded against. I think you get what he's saying here, that if we believe that Scripture is true, and it is, and if we believe that Scripture is not in contradiction with itself, and it's not, it is best for us to hold both of these things together in one hand, as Scripture does. That the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh is both by the will of Pharaoh and by the will of God. So Pharaoh does exactly as he himself wills here. Pharaoh has chosen not to listen. He has chosen to persist in his own way, and he has even chosen to bear the consequences that go with those choices. This is his will to harden his own heart against God. No one, Pharaoh or otherwise, is hardened in their heart against their own will. So there is no one who will be banging on the locked door of heaven at the end of days going, please let me come and love and follow Jesus. There's no one who's going to bang on the door going, I've, I've asked him to come and save me to be the king and lord of my life, but, but he refused. He wouldn't do it. That doesn't happen. This is happening according to Pharaoh's own will. So he is responsible for the impact of that decision. At the same time, the Lord does exactly as he himself wills here. This is according to the word of the Lord. Paul specifically comments on these events in Exodus in his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 9, if you're interested to read, I'll read just a couple of verses here. He says this, Romans chapter 9, verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, God, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's an uncomfortable truth for maybe some of us. The Lord has mercy on whomever he wills. Okay, thumbs up, that sounds good. The Lord then also hardens whomever he wills. Oh, that then becomes uh, trickier. And there might be a tendency for some of us to hear this and to become afraid, maybe anxious, may even angry at this. 
We might accuse God of some sort of injustice in choosing whom he has mercy or hardening upon. You know, how can, we, how can he blame us if we're just doing his will? Paul ad- actually addresses that very thought in the next verses. I won't read them, but let me summarize them here. That might feel irrational to some of us, that the Lord would harden some according to his will. But the summary of Paul's answer to that pushback, how can he do that, is just shush your mouth. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God, he says. Now, to be clear, it is hard to swallow some of these things I know. It is natural to be confused, to be curious, to even be concerned about some of these things. But do not let that sink you into accusing God of wrongdoing. The Lord is God. He is all good, all wise, all powerful. And who darkens his counsel by words without knowledge? Be careful about accusing him and do not talk back to him. So what's a better response than for us as Christians? We don't want just a passive resignation to this. To go, I guess the Lord hardens hearts, so just got to deal with it. Just got to live with the gnats now. Stock up on the hydrocortisone. That's not helpful to us. We don't want passive resignation, but three things, very, very briefly, that I do think are helpful responses. One is to be humbled. To say, this is the finger of God, and let that be enough to quiet our mouths. We also want to be comforted by this. That Pharaoh is the most powerful man on earth, and even he is putty in the hand of the Lord. So even in the midst of all these plagues, nothing, nothing, nothing has spun out of control. It's still according to the word of the Lord. And then finally, we want to be amazed when we do see mercy and grace given to us that we wouldn't take it for granted, but be, be thankful when he gives us mercy. That we would see this as a gift of Jesus who is able to soften even the hardest of hearts. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to take in these hard things in a way that honors you. Would you cause us to bow our hearts in worship? Would you comfort us by these truths and even help us to be amazed by grace that is given to us in Jesus? Lord, would you continue to walk with us and guide us in these things? Draw us to yourself as your people. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.